The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I could not be more delighted to welcome my guest, Connie Evers. She's a fellow dietitian. She's had about the same decade's worth of experience, about 30 years of experience being a dietitian, only her focus is on the health of children and adolescents, feeding children and adolescents, and she works as a nutrition education consultant in schools, universities, state agencies, USDA child nutrition programs. She's been on radio and TV programs all across the United States. She's based in Portland, Oregon, where she raised three children, grew up on a farm in Nebraska, and she's recently returned to clinical practice, which is very interesting because I think what happens is we... Maybe we start in clinical practice, and then we do a lot of other work, and then we come back as better practitioners. So, Connie, welcome. Oh, it is so great to be here. Thank you, Melinda, for having me. It's my pleasure, because I want to have our listeners learn from you. Let's go back 30 years when you first started in the dietetics practice. What led you down the path of children? That was just something that probably started even in my internship. I just really connected. I mean, I knew from almost the very beginning that I wanted to work with children and families. And just working with the pediatricians, the doctors were so very different than all the other physicians that I experienced because they, a long time ago, to me, they're the first line that got it about prevention They knew how very important it was from the day that baby was born to do all the things we know to keep that baby healthy. Yeah. And I find that that's still true, that, you know, I love the pediatricians that I work with now. They honestly really get that. Yeah. So the challenges that you probably saw 30 years ago, I'm thinking might be a little different than those you see today, although also some same ones. Yes, yeah, some of the same, some some are different. I think today families are much more confused because nutrition was not in the news multiple times a day 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I also was seeing people who had more medical, seriously ill children, that kind of thing, where um, we weren't really focusing at all on child obesity, we weren't thinking of really sports nutrition so much. Right. We Kids at six and seven years old weren't in classic soccer leagues and intensive physical activity like they are now. So now we're really looking at all kids in a preventive sense. Unfortunately, the thing that hasn't changed for dietitians is we are still not really reimbursed mm. in a fair and equitable manner as a preventive health person. And that... That upsets me more than anything, that we haven't made any progress. And it's not that I'm just saying I want money. It's that we aren't going to be able to be part of the healthcare system and prevention if we don't do something about getting reimbursement through insurance companies. Mm. And you'd think that prevention would be first and foremost 
And you'd think that we would have listened to Hippocrates when one of our earliest respected physicians said that food is our first medicine. So I don't get it either, but I know that you do. Your book, I should mention this, is probably been on the desk of dietitians, teachers, and parents for, for decades, How to Teach Nutrition to Kids. And it's packed full with strategies for helping children eat well. And I think what we share is helping kids to connect with food and agriculture. And I just, this year, 2012, released the fourth edition of the book, which, you know, it boggles my mind that this book would be around so long. But as I was revising it, I feel like that's one of the biggest differences is really in every section that I wrote, I was trying to do that connection with kids and food. So I am not as interested in them reciting the nutrients and what they do. It's connecting with a food and agriculture and how really a healthy planet and a healthy us. So I think we really share that link, Melinda. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you another thing I love about this book. So my version is dated 2003, so I know I'm a little behind the times. But I was looking through the pages that I had tagged because, of course, when, when my kids were young, and I'm sure yours too, you spent a lot of time in their classrooms. And this was such a great tool for me to help me think about the way I wanted to teach children about food nutrition and make it exciting, make it fun and interesting and hands-on. But you had a section on media literacy. Uh-huh. And that's something that I think has changed, is that the number of ads that children see today and where they see them. So 30 years ago, nobody was plugged into a personal digital device, right? Nobody had a cell phone. It was TV, pretty much. And now kids are targeted at all angles. I, I think that's oh, wrong. Absolutely. And, yeah, and that is something I really updated because you are so right, and it really concerns me. The embedded messages, I mean, they go on a website, and it's on the advert games, uh, the things that we probably never even could dream about, and increasingly young children. I mean, I walked into a patient's room the other day, and a two-year-old was playing a game on her mom's iPhone. So it starts very, very early, and they are exposed to so much. You know, what I always say is I wish those creative geniuses that are marketing to kids and in a very effective way from their standpoint could come over to the public health side yeah. And help us get those messages. Of course, there's the big dollars on the other side, yeah, too. I was going to say, there's no money in broccoli, Connie. I know. <laughs> except, at the, except years down the road when someone's not laying in a bed with a heart attack or cancer, right? We don't connect right. those dots. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you another question, and that is one of the emails that we've been sharing back and forth. You mentioned something that really blew me away because now that you're back in clinical practice, you actually told me about a three-year-old who was drinking 45 ounces of Gatorade per day. How does that happen? And this was actually, what's interesting, this child was underweight. And that's what I'm seeing with the kids that are really overdoing the sugar-sweetened beverages. They're either underweight or they're overweight because in this case, this child was not eating food. And so the mom was worried that the child wasn't getting any intake. And and here's what else has changed. I was looking at her sippy cup, and I said, could I please see that sippy cup? I looked at it. I turned it upside down. I said, this is a nine-ounce 
sippy cup. Wow. I don't even, when my children were little, I remember a four-ounce sippy cup. Yeah. I don't even think they made but a nice, so she was filling it five times a day. Wow. And again, then I see the kids, and I've seen up to 70 ounces in some of the older kids with sugar-sweetened beverages. Yeah. And, of course, their dental health is terrible. Right. Um, you know, they're either underweight or overweight. They're malnourished. They're obviously not getting the nutrients that they need. And I'm just not sure where these messages are coming from. Yeah, there's this understanding, I think, that, or the, the misunderstanding, I should say, that these sports drinks are healthier than soda. And the data I've seen does not support that. What do you tell parents right. about beverages? I know. And I, I do a lot of education on this. I mean, I remember even with my own son's sports teams, talking to them, showing them, looking at it and saying, why do you think you need a sports drink? Well, we need it because of electrolytes. You know, the trainer, the coaches, everybody. I said, well, what are electrolytes? Yeah. And, you know, they're telling me, you know, well, there's potassium and sodium. And I'm like, how much potassium? Oh, it looks like there's 30 milligrams. I'm like, okay, let's go to the refrigerator and let's look at some charts, too. Let's look at milk. Let's look at orange juice. Let's look at potatoes and sweet potatoes. And they're all, you know, in the range of four to 700 milligrams of potassium. Exactly. And I love that exercise because it, it helps show kids how they're really being taken advantage of through advertising. And that goes back to that whole media literacy work that we have to help kids analyze these ads Otherwise, they're going to be misled and ripped off. Right. And a problem with the sports drinks, too, is that they really do focus on celebrities and celebrity athletes. Mm. And one of the things that I've done that's really fun is I've gotten to work with a celebrity athlete. I don't know if you're aware, but Paul Pierce is the captain of the Boston Celtics, and he has a foundation for kids' health. And his PR people actually found me on Twitter and so I've been blogging for him for about a year. I could be putting the same exact blog on my own website, and what would I get, a couple dozen people? But the fact that it is you know, somebody who's so well-known, it's really gotten a good readership. So I've tried to tap into the, the other side of that, and he really does prioritize kids' fitness and health, which I like. Do you want to share that website? Yes, that's the truthonhealth.org. Okay, that would be a good and one. And if you go down to where the blogs or click on blogs, I contribute most of, I think, all of the nutrition blogs. That's And terrific. then there's some other ones with, Paul has the Fit Club 34, his number's 34, so he does a lot of videos that show him interacting with children and how they can do different things on the playground. He really does a good job. He really relates well. You can You can see that he's naturally good with kids. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about some other issues that you're seeing in your clinical practice and just things that you've seen over the years and trends. Mm-hmm. Childhood obesity. Uh, well, one of the things that, you know, that I've seen that has really made me aware is is how our focus on child obesity and the words that we're using all the time are really trickling down to kids, and we're stigmatizing a lot of kids. And I think we need to change the conversation 
and stop using child obesity, child obesity. You know, child obesity shouldn't be the reason we are making our school lunches better. Mm-hmm. Child obesity shouldn't be the reason we're making better playgrounds or more walkable communities. We really need to change it to healthy habits for all kids and all families and stop stigmatizing these kids. One of my the biggest challenges I'm facing right now just this week is Children don't want to see the dietician. The yeah. pediatricians will talk, will say, you know, here's your weight, here's your growth chart, and the children break down crying. Mm-hmm. And the parents, it's a really emotional subject. Mm-hmm. And so I'm working, one of my goals right now is to work towards healthy habits, talking about family food habits and healthy behaviors to get these families to even come see me. Yeah. I was in for a checkup a couple of weeks ago, and I saw a phlebotomist. You know, I had some blood drawn, and I jokingly said to her, I don't know who people want to see less, whether they would prefer to see a dietitian or the phlebotomist, because I agree with you. You know, it's people do not want to see the dietitian because they're afraid that the dietitian is going to tell them everything that they can't eat that they love. And Mm -hmm. really nothing could be farther from the truth. I think that what we do is help people create or recreate a healthy relationship with food. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because, again, that is my goal, a healthy relationship with food where we're looking at the whole family we're exploring emotional issues around food. I mean, I feel like it. Don't you feel like we're as much a psychologist as we are a nutritionist? Um, yeah, untrained psychologist. <laughs> right, exactly. And for me to sit there and say, oh, so many calories and this and that, and I don't do a lot of nutrient analysis and extensive calories. And if I have to, if there's a medical reason, a child needs to count carbohydrates because of diabetes or something. But, you know, in general, I'm really looking at that pattern and the intuitive eating and trying to listen to where they are and help them set some goals for where they are, not where I think they should be. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Connie Evers. She is a wonderful registered dietitian with a focus on the health of children and adolescents. And she's also the author of How to Teach Nutrition to Kids, which is a classic book that's probably on the desk of most dietitians and parents and teachers who have ever worked with children and trying to create these healthy relationships around food. So, What do we tell parents who are concerned about their children's weight? Well, I think, first of all, it is helpful to talk to somebody who is a professional. I think that sometimes it's the parents who try the hardest that can do the most damage. It's a very sensitive issue. It's a family issue. It's not the child's issue. You can't approach food in a punitive way. I think when you see a child doing any kind of harmful behavior. So if it's an older child experimenting with drugs or doing risky sexual activity or whatever, those are all signs that something's going on with a child. And overeating, sneaking food, those are in that same category. So it's looking at it as not just a eating or nutrition issue, but a broader issue with your child. So, mm-hmm. And I think that not being afraid to talk about it, I think parents want to feel like they're, they, they're successful at feeding their kids. 
and so it's sort of insulting to them. So I try to reassure them. And I think what's really helped me now, coming back after 30 years, is raising three kids of my own, having a number of issues with my own children, and being able to relate to them as a mom and saying, you know, I did have a picky eater, or I did have a son who really got into fast food behavior and we had to deal with that, or I, I understand all these issues that you're going through. And once I get that trust, it seems like we can start to to move forward and make some good changes. You know, you brought up the picky eaters. I think that's one of the biggest issues that parents brought to me was what do I do with my picky eater? Do you have any tips for parents? Right. And, you know, (laughs) I get that a lot, too. Actually, the first thing I do is reassure them that it is a normal stage of development, Mm-hmm. And that at certain ages and stages, that's what you would expect. I think part of it is even biological, that we have a reason why we are suspicious of certain foods. And also just the fact that your growth is so tremendous in the first year that most infants aren't picky eaters. It's when they become toddlers. What I also tell them is this is normal, but you could actually compound this problem and make it a whole lot worse. And in a power struggle over food, the child always wins. Yeah. So it's important for them to understand it. And if it extends past five or six years of age, that's when I start to really worry about it because the parent might start being forceful or making all these rules and you have to take a bite of this to get a bite of that. And then they're all of a sudden putting a great value on dessert. And asparagus must taste so terrible that you have to eat it in order to get your cookie. So so if we can get those kids, you know, when they're in that sort of toddler phase and the parents can understand to relax. And again, the Ellen Satter division of responsibility, I really do use that philosophy that the parents provide a healthy diet. I mean, they provide a variety of healthy foods for the child to choose from, but ultimately the child chooses the amount and the foods to eat. And if you're consistent with that and you're not caving and saying, oh, they're only going to eat white foods or brown foods or fried foods or fast food and start catering to that, that's when you get those really bad habits forming. You've done a lot of work with the school food service, and it's my understanding that the school food services operate on a separate budget. And Mm -hmm. many times, one of the reasons why they bring some of these less desirable, say, low-nutrient, high-calorie foods into their cafeterias is because they're money makers. I know you've done a lot of work with school districts all over the country. How do you deal with some of these real problems where schools are facing budget cuts And yet we really don't want to fund schools or sports programs or music programs on the backs of our kids. Right, I know. And hopefully that is changing. I mean, it's changing in some school districts, and now with the new legislation it should change more. We have kind of a physical problem in a lot of districts now because over the last 20 or 30 years so many schools moved to a convenience-based kitchen operation where they don't even really have real kitchens. It's all heat and eat. Yes. So they were buying all the pre-prepared entrees. 
And so they've got to actually reconstruct their kitchens to go back to scratch cooking. And I am seeing that school districts are doing that. I mean, I talked to the food service director in Greeley, Colorado, not long ago, and he had a real commitment where whatever he needed to do to retool those kitchens, he was going to start doing that, and they were going to move back to scratch cooking. I mean, you know, I think food manufacturers can somewhat respond to that, but it's really difficult when the kids are so used to that salt taste and that fat taste and that certain kind of chicken nugget reformulating to a low-sodium baked product doesn't always, then you get a lot of waste and in the trash. So I think it's still going to take a while. I think we can do more with serving the other side, the fruits, the vegetables, the salads, whole grain things. I think it's the entrees where it's going to take us some time. Mm -hmm. A lot of times whenever I bring these issues up about feeding kids, the response that I often hear is that, well, you know what, it's all up to the families for the, the parents to say no. And yet getting back to that original conversation we were having about the media influences on children, I don't think parents have an easy time saying no. It's very difficult to be up against a very sophisticated and savvy advertising industry. How do you Right, and the the food industry itself. And when you walk into a grocery store, what do you see? When you see aisles and aisles of sweetened beverages, I think beverages are the fastest-growing category in the supermarket now. So it's not just the advertising. Even if you had all electronic media turned off, the teenagers would go in the convenience stores and you take your kids into the grocery store and so it really is a tough environment for families. Yeah. And that's partly what I'm trying to do. And partly when trying to get kids in to see me, it helps a little bit if I say, it's not your fault. This isn't always an easy thing to do. And we need to get back until we can change the whole culture. We need to look at each family one at a time. And it, it, that's tougher to do. Mm-hmm. So I like to look at myself as maybe working on both sides of it, you know, working individually with families on one hand while I still continue to advocate for big system societal changes. And, you know, Connie, I think that is really the best place to be so you still have a finger on the pulse of what families are dealing with and then you can better address the policy side by saying, hey, this is what I've witnessed, this is what I've seen. It's very powerful, and I think that is the beauty of getting older in a profession, is that mm-hmm. you get to see how all the dots are indeed connected. Exactly. I, yeah, all the puzzle pieces are fitting together. And the one thing I did want to mention, too, that I'm excited about with my new job working with pediatricians is we are really focusing on prevention with a new program called Fresh Start, which works with women in early pregnancy And it is actually a community service. It's free to women in early pregnancy. They come in, and it's a six-session program where we work with them early pregnancy and later pregnancy with weight gain concerns, and then we really promote breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. getting kids started on infant feeding in a correct manner, toddler feeding, and then the sixth session is really geared into that media literacy and also the whole environment. I mean, it's called Healthy Family Food Habits, but we're looking at what your child might get in daycare and in school and even when they go to grandma's house or their friend's house and, you know, all those kinds of things. So 
we're starting prevention at the earliest we could possibly think of. So this is available to people in your community in Portland. It is. We are starting it just this fall. And I hope, though, you know, what we really would like to do is once I've taught it, and we're also going to be doing some surveys. We have one of our pediatricians has a master's in public health and a good research background, so we'll be collecting some research data and evaluating the program, but eventually, I would say in a year or so, we'd like to package it and sell it to other communities. That would be wonderful. I'm sure you'll have success because as much as the environment has changed, I think that at the end of the day, parents are the same in that we all want the very best outcomes for our children. Yes, and I think starting in pregnancy is a really good teachable moment because what I've observed is you go through, and these are young women, and they may or may not have been paying attention to their health and nutrition. All of a sudden, they're pregnant, and it is a totally different mindset, like, wow, I'm responsible for someone else growing inside of me, and I need to learn all I can learn. So I think getting them at that teachable moment is really important. If you were to give families some top tips to create a healthy eating environment, what would they be? Well, I think one of the big things is family meals, getting back and prioritizing that as much as soccer practice and violin lessons and school and all the other activities that you do because the research is really strong for family meals. I also think that all families should grow something edible. And if it's as simple as a few herbs in pots in the windowsill or a great big plot in a community garden, I just think it's important for everybody to understand what it's like to grow organic food. Mm-hmm. And I find that kids just love doing that. They just love harvesting and figuring out what to do. And, and I, I never had any problems with any of my children being good vegetable eaters, and I honestly think it's because we were so into gardening as they were growing up. Um, I agree. Another thing is I think that families need to really prioritize breastfeeding. And if you can do it for six months, that's fabulous. A year is even better. A lot of good research there. And movement, <laughs> that would be the other thing. As families, really prioritizing every single day that everybody is moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I notice on your nutrition topics, the things that you speak about at workshops, really basic notions like eating breakfast and backing that up with research to show that children really do better when they eat breakfast and making it at a priority and and not a Pop-Tart or some sort of, you know, (laughs) sugary food, but something meaningful. And how do we teach parents and children to come together and create family time around food, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, we've just moved away from that and everybody has their face in an electronic device and this and that and I really kind of take a hard line when families tell me they don't have time for cooking or family meals because I don't think and to me I'm like you know what the best fast food is they've got all kinds of great like whole grain pastas or they have the pastas with the pulses mixed in which Mm -hmm. has the you know like the bean fiber I said you know You could start your water boiling, and then you could be sautéing some vegetables, whatever. I mean, it doesn't even take a recipe to get a meal together that is that simple. You don't have to be a master chef 
to throw together a salad. Also, assigning the kids as they're getting older. You're Hi. tearing up the lettuce. You know, you're going to be chopping the fruit for the fruit salad. Connie, we're going to have to stop our interview because okay. our 30 minutes <laughs> it's is been up. Fun. <laughs> You've had wonderful advice. And I just want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Connie Evers. She's a registered dietitian focusing on the health of children and adolescents. I want to recommend her wonderful website, which is simply nutritionforkids.com. I want to thank Connie for being my guest. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Connie, thank you for your work, all your great advice, and thank you for your great book, How to Teach Nutrition to Kids. Thank you, and I'm honored to spend time with you today, Melinda. Melinda.